Man, honestly, I, I'm, I've, I've thought this so many times during worship. I just, I just like the whole time during worship today, I just felt the sweetest residual presence of the Lord. And, and it's like that like pretty much every single week for me. I just notice it when you guys are leading worship, Chad, your teen. Like, I just, it doesn't even matter what song is being sung. There's just this sweet presence of the Lord, and I'm so grateful for that. And so often I'll sit there during worship and just tell the Lord, like, thank you. Like, I don't want to take this for granted. Like, you're here like this every week. I Like, your presence is so sweet here every week in the worship. And I just thank you. Like, I love this. I love to just sit in during, uh, just like sit in it during worship and just rest. It's just awesome. I love it. It's so anointed. Okay, Lord, help me. And that's, that's the hard part is because uh, I could just keep sitting in it. And I'm not in preaching mode right now, but I got to transition. Ah, okay, Lord, I love you. I just pray that you'd help me in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I just want to worship, honestly. That's what's in my heart right now. I love you, Abba. Taking the Lord's Supper. Oh, I've been doing that just in my own prayer time um, recently. I've just been trying to do it more frequently just in my own prayer time with the Lord is just celebrate the Lord's Supper. I love doing that. It's an awesome way to worship the Lord when you're on your own, too. And you know what? If you don't have grape juice, it's okay. Just use water. It works. It works fine. It's, it's what it is. It's the, it represents the blood of Jesus. That's what matters. Okay, now I'm going to preach. Mosaic Covenant. All right, so I'm going to continue the series I started, Restoring Paradise. Um, and we're just working our way through the biblical storyline. So the whole Bible tells one story. And I'm going to summarize it. There's four main parts to the story of the Bible, okay? So first of all, God, he... The dream that was in God's heart. God has always been. He has no beginning. He's eternal. If you actually just think about that for a little bit, it'll blow your mind. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? But God is eternal. He's always been. But he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he has a dream in his heart. And he's like, he's like, he want God. The dream in God's heart is he wants to live on the earth with his people forever. That's what he wants. And so he starts it off. The day comes, and they're going to build. And, he, and he, um, he creates its creation. The first part of the story is where he creates the heavens and the earth and the trees and the stars and everything that's in it, all the people. And everything is good. Everything is blessed. There's that God and people are in perfect union with one another. Therefore, even the people, Adam and Eve, they were in perfect union together. And there was no suffering, no death, no curse of any kind. Everything was blessed. Until the second major development in the plot happened in the, in the story. And that's where people decided to disobey God. And when they disobeyed God, they brought themselves and all of natural creation under a curse. And that leads us into the next part of the biblical story where God looks at us and he's like, you know what? I'm still going to do what I set out to do. I want to live on the earth with my people forever. But the problem is, is I'm holy and they're not now. Now there's sin on the earth and I'm going to have to fix that. 
in order for me to come and live among them forever like I desire. And so God begins to put a redemption plan into motion. Redemption is the third part of the biblical story. And just he, he begins to put a plan in place to redeem all that was lost in the fall and to restore things to how they were before the fall. And so that continues. It starts really at the, it's kind of announced at the, uh, in Genesis 3, and it continues to just unfold throughout the story, God's redemption plan throughout the whole Bible, until it comes to its conclusion in Revelation 21, 22, where God's redemption plan, and that's the final restoration where we see in the last two chapters of the Bible, there's no more sin on the earth, and God is living on the earth with his people, and there's no more sin, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more pain, no curse. Everything's blessed. God and people are in perfect union with one another, and all the people, they love each other. They love Jesus, and um, isn't that a good story? Like, that's our story, and guess what? You're living in the middle of that story. You're living in the middle of that story right now. And what we're doing is we're just kind of following key points in the Bible that just trace the plot line of of God's redemptive story. And here we're looking at the covenant that God makes with Israel through Moses. And so uh, I'm just going to jump right into it. So we started last week. We read Exodus 19. Today we're going to do Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And really, it's the same thing. God brings Israel. All the di- First, God promises Abraham in Genesis 12. God promises Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you multitudes of descendants. And I'm going I'm to make you into a great nation. And then I'm going to bring you into this certain land that I promised you forever. It's going to be yours. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. It's like, okay. So sure enough, here we are. It's like over 400 years later. Abraham has been, you know, he's been dead for 400 years, but now he has literally multitudes of descendants, probably over a million descendants, his family, but they were slaves in Egypt. And the time comes where God says, okay, now I'm going to deliver you out. And he delivers them out of Egypt, and he's on the way. He's leading them to the land that he promised Abraham he would give them. But here, you got to remember at this point in the story, and so Exodus, I mean, not Exodus, Exodus 19, Moses goes up to the mountain. He has this encounter with God. The mountain shakes. You remember that last week? How many of you remember the story? You'll make me feel better if you say you did remember it. Good. Thank you, babe. Um. So Moses is on the mountain having this encounter with God, and this is what happens. This is the continuation of the story. We had to stop last week for time, but the story continues. Moses is up there on the mountain, and God talks to him and gives him the law. Because remember, he invited Israel. He's like, hey, I want you. I want to make a covenant with you. I want you to be my own special people, right? My holy nation. You're not going to be like the other nations. You're going to be my holy nation. And... um. And, and then he gives Moses the law. Now, here's what's happening, okay? There's a lot of things happening, but I just want you to get this. At this point, these people, Israel, they're not a nation yet. They're just like a massive family. I mean, there's like a million or so. I mean, there may be more, I'm sure. 
multitudes of them, but they're, they're not their own nation. They're not functioning that way. They're just this giant family that have their own distinct, that God has supernaturally helped them maintain their own distinct identity as a family. And then God now is in the process of taking this massive family and forming them into a nation. And on the mountain, he gives the law of Moses, is what it's called. But really what the law is, it's their constitution for this new nation he's birthing called Israel. You guys tracking with me? So if you go back to the beginning, for example, of the United States of America, it's like, you know, we were, all the people are over here and this land, but, you know, they're all part of Great Britain, right? And then, but what happens is all of a sudden the war happens. We're not part of Great Britain anymore, but then they're like, how are we going to function as a society? Like, what are the laws going to be? Like, what's okay and what's not okay? And they gather together. They have, you know, different things. And ultimately, long story short, they come up with the Constitution. And that is like the laws by which our nation is governed, our, our, our life as a nation is governed. That's basically what happened with Israel here, except it wasn't a bunch of elders in Israel who got together and started thinking and said, what are our laws going to be? God came to Moses and said, here are your laws. This is how you're going to function as a nation. Does that make sense? This is a big deal for them. And I'm just going to go through the Ten Commandments. This is the first part of it. Exodus chapter 20. I'm just going to work my way quickly through these 21 verses. It says, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. First one right here. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, I, listen to this phrase, I am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now, remember what happened right before this? God, in essence, gets down on his knee, and he says, I want you to come into a covenant relationship with me. He's talking to Israel. And he's like, I want you to be my own treasured possession among all the nations. It's like this picture of a marriage covenant. And they say, yes, we will do this with you. And now, the, I love this, that he's saying, okay, you actually, none of you know me very well except Moses. I'm just introducing myself to you right now, and all of you are freaking out. He's like, but here's what you need to know about me. I am not going to tolerate your affection for any other gods. It's just like on the day of your wedding, that would, like, you would think that about, about your spouse, right? I mean, you would be like, just so you know, like, we're entering into this marriage covenant together. Like, I'm not going to tolerate your affection for any other guys. In that sense, I'm a jealous. God's like, I'm a jealous God. And, and here's the deal. that jealousy, the jealousy of God, it's when he's, um, it's not like he's like, you know, you see un, people who, unhealthy jealousy. I used to have a problem with this when I was younger where I would just live in fear that, you know, whatever girlfriend I had at the time, 
like, oh, she's probably wonder if she's not being faithful to me, and I would just worry about it. And sometimes I'd just accuse her of things that I was suspecting, and it was just fear and paranoia is all it was. That was not good. That was not healthy, right? That was an unhealthy thing. But a healthy jealousy is like when you're in a marriage covenant, it would be right if I were unfaithful to my wife, it would be, and she obviously found out about it, it would be right for her to not be okay with that. Does that make sense? Okay, we're not talking about suspicion. (laughs) We're talking about, I'm not going to tolerate. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. That's what's going on here. God's like, I'm not, it's not okay when you're married that your spouse is giving what belongs to you to another, what they've made a covenant to you, and then they start giving it away to others. It's like, I'm not going to tolerate that. And that's what God's saying to Israel here. He's like, idolatry? He's like, you're going to have no other gods but me. And he's like, I'm a jealous God, and I will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. And then I'm going to go to verse 7. The next thing he says is this, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Let me, Cecile helped me understand this. Actually, a few months ago, we were studying this chapter together, and she said something about this verse and, and you know how she saw it and what it meant, and I thought, you're right, that's what it means. That's the, that's the best explanation I've ever heard, and I think you're exactly right. So other translations would say you shouldn't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? You guys familiar with that? <clears throat> I always just thought growing up, that's like, don't cuss. Don't swear and use God's name as a cuss word. That's what I always thought it meant, right? And, and, and by the way, that's really good. Don't cuss and don't use his name as a, as a swear word. That is a, that's a good thing. But I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think what he's talking about here is this. He's talking about people, because you got to remember, at this time, they don't, have their, they don't have their own, they don't have a copy of the scriptures at this point. And none of them really know God for themselves. But God, what he would do is he would, he would come and he would speak to a prophet, Moses, and then Moses would convey what God was saying to the people, right? And, and um, that, that's a tremendous responsibility. That's the way things were functioning here at this time. And so what, but what would happen is God anticipated, it's a sinful nature, uh, that there would be people who would stand up and say, I have a message in the name, I speak this representing the Lord, in the name of the Lord, and this is what God says, and he would give them a false message that leads them away from faithfulness to God and obedience to the law of Moses and into sin and idolatry, which would get them in trouble. You guys with me? And this happened actually, like throughout the rest of the, Whole Bible, Old and New Testament, there's false prophets and false teachers. But listen, a lot of times, uh, not always, but there were often, there were prophets, so to speak, air quotes, 
who would stand up and they would say, thus says the Lord, and, but God had not spoken to them. And God, it made him mad because it actually deceived the people and caused them to do the opposite of what God really told them to do. Is this making sense? And God's, and, and, and that's, uh, Jeremiah, there's different places like that, like where these prophets would get up and they'd be like, no, the Lord's with you. He's going to bless you. He's going to fight for you. While the people were living in idolatry, living in sin, they were sacrificing their sons and daughters to demonic gods, literally human sacrifice. They were, they were, there was adultery. There was corruption and injustice filling the land, the, the rich oppressing the poor. There's like all this kind of stuff going on. And God is speaking through the true prophets at that time. And he's saying, guys, He's like, I told you in the law of Moses that if you behave this way, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to bring another nation, and they're going to, I'm going to, they're going to wipe you out, and I'm going to send you away into captivity, away from this land, I promise you. And they're living that way. And God would raise up a true prophet to say, guys, this is what God warned you not to do. These are the negative consequences that he would bring upon you if you did this. And he's saying, he's doing this. And then a false prophet would get up and say, no, the Lord spoke to me. And the Lord told me he's going to bless you. He's got, while they're worshiping their pagan gods. And it actually comforted the people in their own sin. And then the judgment broke in upon them. And they did not repent because they were hard-hearted. And they were deceived, even by lulled to sleep by false messages where people spoke, the Lord spoke to me when he never spoke to them. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about here. That's why he's like, I'm not going to tolerate your affection for other gods. And anyone who misuses, like speaks in my name when I didn't really speak, he's like, I'm going to discipline them. Because here's the, here's the, the, the major problem with that. It's not like none of them, uh, it's not like it is now in the new covenant where everyone who walks with Jesus has the Holy Spirit living in them. It wasn't like that. They didn't have Bibles like we have Bibles to know the truth about who God is, to be able to discern a lot of these words that were coming forth from people. It was like God gave them the law of Moses, and God's basically saying here, he's like, man, do not use the name of the Lord in vain. Like, misuse my name. And then he says, the Lord will not let you go unpunished if you do that. And we see that. Like, God punished False prophets, false teachers. And you know, even in the New Testament, it's actually a pretty significant theme in the New Testament is, is, is they're warning against false prophets and false teachers. Jesus himself warned in the Sermon on the Mount against false prophets, false teachers. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which basically, in essence, he's calling people back to the law of Moses to live it as it was originally intended. The Ten Commandments. I mean, he even quotes it. He's like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. He doesn't change the message. He doesn't say, but I tell you, never mind. It's okay. No big deal. He didn't say that. He says, I tell you, if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So he actually calls them back to the morality outlined in the Ten Commandments. But he's like, not just on an outward superficial level, from the heart. He's like, I want you to be pure in your mind. I want you to take captive adulterous thoughts. Does that make sense? And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he does the same thing. He's like, watch out for false prophets. He actually says that. Who comfort you and actually get you to 
think that it's okay to live in disobedience to God, no big deal. God's like, don't listen to him. You'll know them by their fruit. And he says those kind of things. The temptation, I pray that the Lord would help me not do this morning when I preach, is to preach a whole message on all Ten Commandments. So I could do a whole series, on, uh, like, like a whole message on each one of these. That would be a great series. But I'm moving on. I think you guys, you guys get it, right? Miss, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Good. Thank you, Autumn. My wife gets it, and that's the most important thing to me. Okay, so... Um, Let's go to 8, verse 8. And he says, Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, any foreigners living among you. For in six days... Now remember, this is the law given to not just like... An individual. This is the constitution. This is the law that the the way of life in the whole nation is going to be governed by these things. And actually, you know what? Even today in Israel, I was there, I don't know, three, four, five years ago. I can't remember. And I was there, and I remember on the Sabbath day, everything is closed. Like the businesses are all closed. Like the whole, it's like the whole, it's actually such a beautiful thing. It's like you go in there and just life is going on. And then all of a sudden, it's like, um, you know, around like uh, sundown, the day before the Sabbath, around dinner time. It's like all the businesses close, and there's like the whole nation just goes into this rest mode. And everything, the whole day, the Sabbath day, is just the businesses are closed and everything. It's just, it truly is like their government. It's actually their nation does this weekly, every single day. It's, it's really incredible. But it's, it's, God built it into their law, their constitution as a nation from the beginning. Is that God's the Sabbath day? I, I, don't, I, want every, I don't want anybody working. I want you guys to honor the Sabbath. For in six days, verse 11, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested... That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. This was a gift to them. I, I love the Sabbath. I could, I'm not going to preach a whole message on this either. But I, I love this principle in here because I was like, God is not, I'm not, he doesn't look at us as a bunch of robotic workers. That's just like, he's not like this slave master who doesn't care about the slave, just drive them until they die or burn out and they're not worth anything anymore, and then discard them and get another one. He's not like that. He's like, we're sons and daughters to him. And he's like, no, I, I command you, don't work, none of you, on this last day. He's like, on that day, rest, remember the Lord your God. And it's like in Israel, like they all, they're all hanging out with their families that day. And it's just, it's just, I love that. That God's like, I love you guys. Like, I, I didn't create you just to be these robotic workers. I actually want to have a day where you can enjoy the fruit of your labor. Um, and he built that into their law. So verse 12, honor your father and mother. I'm just going to, everybody say that out loud. Honor your father and mother. Then, didn't you preach on this not long ago? It was such a good message. This is a, like, you can go on our YouTube channel and look at the message Autumn preached on honoring your father and mother. It was probably a few months ago. And uh, it was so good. And you know why it was just so beautiful? Because this is something that in our society, hardly ever hear this anymore. 
And this value in our society, especially when I say our society, I'm thinking of America. In America, our value, the way we value our, the elders and authority is actually really horrible. Like we're bad at it. Other cultures, they, they even, you know, other cultures, a lot of other cultures, it's just built, they honor the elderly. They honor their parents. You know, there's just this built-in honor. They would never do anything to want to dishonor or disgrace or, or anything like that. They're, they're, there's just this sense of honor for elders and for those in authority and for parents. And that's actually a beautiful thing. And, uh, and, but in America, it's like, I think this is actually one of the demonic strongholds in our own culture. Sometimes you can look at another culture and from the outside looking in, you're like, gosh, there's some obvious demonic strongholds here and you can identify them, but it's hard to pinpoint the strongholds in your own culture because it's, you're normal to you, right? But I think dishonoring authority, starting with mom and dad is, is actually one of the, the, the serious strongholds in our culture that leads to a lot of trouble for us. And, and God, right here, like this is God's value system. Like when he gives them his Ten Commandments, he's letting them know, this, is, this matters to me. Like this really, I'm not going to bother, like just, I don't just flippantly make up a command. <laughs> you know, God's like, this is really important to me. And you're, you guys are fallen. You have your fallen nature and I'm revealing myself and my ways to you. And here's what you need to know about me. I value mothers and fathers and the children honoring their mothers and fathers. And I'm going to tell you, children, this is what God says, children that do that well will be blessed in life. That's, that's what he says. It's an awesome sermon. My wife preached a little while ago, but I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this either today. But it's so important, and I just wanted to point it out and emphasize it a little bit because honestly like I, and not just I, i'm going to talk to young people but not just for you for me for adults you know what like i still it's a big thing like consciously i'm like god I, I want to honor my mother i want to honor my father now at the age of 40 almost 47 i i, I you never outgrow the commandment to honor your father and mother even though i have my own household now you know, my mom doesn't tell me what to do and, you know, those kind of things. But I want to honor her. I want to show her how valued she is. I want to value her in my heart. And I want to speak about her to her and behind her back in a way that's honoring of her, not dishonoring. Does that make sense? But young people, I want to encourage you. It, almost every single thing in your world is actually pushing you in the opposite direction of honoring your parents. Probably almost every single television show that, you, that is popular is pushing dishonoring parents and dishonoring authority. Actually is mocking authority and mocking mothers and fathers. Celebrating sneaking out and doing things behind your parents' back. And like, it's cool, I'm so smart. These kids are so smart. We can get away with this stuff. And God's like, they're not smart. I'm trying to give them a long, blessed life, but they're doing the opposite. It's actually foolish. That's what God would say. And it's like we think sometimes, like, oh, I'm getting away with it, and all, everybody else is doing it. But I'm telling you, you're going to have to make a choice. Do I want to be like everybody else, or do I want to be who God made me to be? 
And if so, it's like, I want to find out what God's ways are. I'm going to line up with that because I want to live the blessed life he intends for me. Amen. All right. That's a, my wife preached it really good. So listen to that. So number, uh, verse 13, you must not murder. That's a good law. Don't you think? That's a pretty good law. I like that law. By the way, Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount too, but I'm not going to preach it right now. See how disciplined I am? Come on, Jeff. For, I think you know what that means, right? So I probably don't need to keep preaching on that. Uh, verse 14, but you shouldn't murder, just so you know. Uh, also, you must not commit adultery. You must not commit adultery. Isn't that interesting? This was one of the big ones. I mean, God's like, this is going on the top 10 list. Like, there's actually like a bunch of chapters after this of the rest of the law of Moses, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. But like right at the beginning, he's like, I'm just going to get the top 10 right here, the top 10 commandments. And the don't commit adultery is right up there. It's like, God, why is that such a big deal to you? Like, actually, in the law of Moses, this is interesting, okay? If a person committed murder, right, and they were found guilty and they really did commit murder, they were to, commanded in the law to be put to death. It's like, whoa, God's serious about that. But you know what? Committing adultery had the exact same penalty tied to it. If somebody in Israel were to commit adultery... And, you know, there's the trial, you know, they go through their judicial process that they had, and it was, yep, they really did commit adultery, then they were actually put to death for that. And God commanded that. That wasn't like people, that was God. They were obeying God to put the person to death who did that. Now, by the way, I am not telling you to kill the person who committed adultery. <laughs> That's not for us. Remember, this, this was their constitution. This, is, this was laws given to them because their judges made decisions and dished out the consequences for crimes based upon the way God told them to make decisions in the law. This was for them, okay? So just clarifying there. Um, but I, here's the point I want to make with that. That's how seriously God considered the sin of adultery. Why? Because he's like, what I'm trying to do, he's like, here's what happens. He's like, when people take their marriage covenants in a flippant way, and they begin dishonoring their marriage covenants and sleeping around and committing adultery, it leads to all kinds of disastrous consequences that make society a really bad place to live. Broken homes, divorce, all the pain and the depression and the, the, the negative consequence, the poverty that comes along with that in society. You got, you know, children growing up without parents and, and, and broken homes and then what that does in their hearts and then the, the generational downward spiral that comes from this. And God's like, this is a big deal. I'm trying to help you guys out and keep your new nation a, a blessed place to live. And he even said, if you'll obey my laws, I'll bless you and it'll be blessed. But if you don't, it's going to be cursed, right? And so do not commit adultery. This is a big one. Okay, no, verse 15. You must not steal. You must not steal. I'm just 
you guys know what that means. Verse 16. But that's a big one. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to all these. Uh, Verse 16. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. Now, that's not just like, he's not just talking about don't lie to somebody. Although, don't lie, right? It says there's other verses that do say that. But here, that's not specifically what he's referring to. Just like, you know, you, like, you know. You telling your brother, oh my goodness, I caught an eight-pound bass the other day. It was really like a half a pound bass. And he's not talking about that. He, what he's saying here, he's talking about like false witness. He's like, were you like, you're giving a false testimony and you know it. Like in a, in a judicial type accusation type setting that somebody's going to get in big trouble because if you don't like them and you say, so-and-so committed adultery. I saw so-and-so committing adultery with this person and it didn't really happen. But you know, I'm just going to do this and get them in big, big trouble because I don't like these guys. I want to get rid of them. And God's like, that's what this is about. It's about when you're giving purposely, you're giving false testimony in, in that kind of a setting that's going to get somebody in big, big trouble. You guys with me? Do you, you know, just so you know, you guys know this. This happens all the time in society. It really does. There's so much corruption and false testimony and false witnesses because so-and-so doesn't like somebody. How can I take them down and get rid of them? And they just, th- oh, and sometimes we don't do it in a court setting, but all we got to do is just throw the rumor out into the air, air it on social media. And then they're already tried and convicted as guilty because, People don't usually do due process. Everybody just says, oh, I heard this post on Facebook about so-and-so. It must be true. And then it's like they're condemned in the eyes of so many people, and they have to overcome that reputation. Does that make sense? But, the, but God's like, hey, you'll be careful about your word. You shouldn't be intentionally, maliciously making up false stuff to take somebody down. You guys understand? All right. Verse 17. You must not covet. This is a big one. This is another one that's a stronghold in the United States of America is covetousness. We hardly ever talk about it, though. But it's huge. It's a root of a ton of problems. He says you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. It's like don't... Covet is... It's like when you see something that somebody else has and you want it for yourself. And you become envious of them. Because like, they have that and I don't have that. I want it. And because you know what ends up happening with that? There's so many things that end up happening. One, it gets you out of gratitude and into complaining. Which is disastrous for your soul. Um, but the other thing that happened is this. That's the seedbed that hatches um, plots that are bad plots to try and get something that God's not giving them. And uh, so it's, I would say this, the opposite spirit of covetousness is contentment and gratitude. So if you're like, help me not to covet, help me not to covet, that's good. But don't just say, help me not to covet, help me not to covet. Say, help me to lean into contentment and gratitude for what I have. 
That, that, that helps a lot, actually. So if you see, I'm just going to make this one up, right? You see your neighbor, they get a brand new car. It's a sweet car. And you're like, gosh, I wish I had that car, right? And then if you keep meditating on that and just stewing on that, you'll probably uh, spend money that you don't have and get yourself into debt. Or you will, um, you'll just become disgruntled and grumpy on the inside, complaining. You have an accusation. God, you love them more than me. Why do they get that awesome thing and I don't get that awesome thing? It'll get you all messed up. Instead, when you find that thought like, man, I wish I had a car like that. Instead, just say, Lord, thank you that you blessed my neighbor with a good car. Lord, thank you for the car you've given me. Lord, thank you. You know what? I don't need a really sweet Lamborghini. I really don't mean it. I can only legally drive 80 miles an hour on the interstate anyway. So Lord, thank you, Lord. Like my car is enough. Thank you that it gets me to where I need to go and it, when I need to get there. Thank you that the heater works. Lord, thank you. You know what I mean? Like just be, start giving thanks for what you do have and it, it, it actually deliver you right out of that complaining covetousness mode and get you into gratitude and contentment. Okay, but I'm not preaching a sermon on that. Verse 18. So those are the Ten Commandments right there. I did, that was a quick survey. I did pretty good through those. And then, so remember, Moses comes, he's on the mountain. The munder, you remember the mountain was like shaking. The cloud, the dark clouds, the lightning and the thunder. And the, you know, the people are like, oh my goodness. It, while Moses is up there getting the law. And then it says, When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. It, like they, they were like terrified. They were so scared. And then... Moses says in verse 20, don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. And as the people stood in the distance, Moses approached a dark cloud where God was, and then God gives him the rest of the law of Moses, okay? So let me just go into this last part. I just want to give you some things. I think they're on your notes. Um, the three parts of the law of Moses. Do I have that on your notes? Okay, good. I'm just going to give this to you because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the law of Moses that causes people confusion. And, um, and so I, this has been helpful to me, so I'm going to share it with you. So the three parts of the law of Moses. Of course, the law of Moses, the most famous part of the law of Moses is the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, that's the part we just quickly went through. But actually, the law of Moses is much bigger than just those first Ten Commandments. And um, there are three major parts to the law of Moses. So the first part are the moral laws. And the moral laws in the law of Moses are like the Ten Commandments. It, it defines morality according to God's morality. Says God says, yeah, this is so helpful. Listen, they're coming out of a pagan culture in Egypt that worshipped idols of all these different types. They had their own customs and, and, and cultures and ways that they did things and their own morality. 
And God is like, yeah, I'm starting a new society with you, a new nation with you, and it's going to be built on my morality so that you will be blessed. And so it's like there are moral laws in the law of Moses. And so these moral laws are God's unchanging standards. Everybody say unchanging. Okay. And they still apply to us today as Gentiles who are following Jesus in the new covenant. But we, God still is the same. Like, like, yeah, you don't live in the nation of Israel, right? So it's just like if somebody who lives in, um, somebody who lives in Canada is not subject to the laws of the, defined in the Constitution of the United States when, when they're in Canada, right? Because those laws apply to citizens of the United States who live here. That they're for us. And, and when God's giving his laws to Moses, um, it's for Israel. It's for that nation. So there are certain things in their laws that we, we don't have to do. As a United States citizen who's following Jesus, worshiping Yahweh, right? But there are certain things we don't have to do. Certain ceremonies, certain things like that. Certain, um, I'll get into that in a little bit. But here's the deal. But God's morals are the same always. And so we still know God, we don't murder. We don't commit adultery. We don't covet. We don't misuse the name of God. We don't worship idols, right? It's like all those moral laws apply to us today in the New Testament. But then there's the ceremonial laws. That's the second part of the law of Moses. And these, the ceremonial laws that are in there, are, are, they give specific instructions for how priests in Israel were to conduct the various prescribed animal sacrifices to atone for sin. Uh, the way, it gives them like specific instructions for how to cleanse a house when it's contaminated. Literally. There's like these, these huge passages that go into a lot of detail. And he's like, okay, if you go into a house and it has this kind of mildew, right, in the wall, and do this, and if it turns this color, you know, it, then it's all good and it's clean and it's safe to go in, you know, it's clean again and people can live there. But if not, it's not clean and you have to do this to cleanse it from its contamination. And then if it turns this color, just tear the whole thing down. It's not good anymore. And these were like... um these were like ceremonial laws giving instructions for the priests to know how to do their duties. Does that make sense? Okay. So um, these ceremonial laws are no longer necessary for believers in the new covenant because Jesus himself, he became our perfect sacrifice. So we don't sacrifice animals to atone for our sins. Jesus died once for all to cleanse us from sin. You guys with me? So, um, but, and I'll get into it later. Yeah. And, you know, the, the things like, these were good laws. Like, some of these were like health laws, you know? It's like, hey, you know, when there's mildew in a house, you know, we, we have that even in our society, right? When there's certain, I don't know, what are something that can get in your house that costs a lot of money and you can't live there anymore? Black mold. Black mold. Thank you. Like that kind of thing. That's just like some of it. He's talking about that kind of stuff. Like actually in the law of Moses, because like who's in charge here? We have, we set up our structure and our government. We have certain offices and the inspectors, whoever they are, I don't know, but they're supposed to come and inspect our house and they have these all things that's in the law of Moses. 
And the priests did that stuff, and it gives them instructions. So sometimes as you're reading through that, you're like, why do I need to know this? You ever felt that way before? I have. Like, I'm reading in the Law of Moses, and I'm like, man, this is long. And this is kind of boring, if I'm being honest. And why do I need to know this? And the fact is, it's like, um, uh, it's important, and it, it, it does show me some things about God, but it was actually for those priests. It mattered to them. Like, they need to read that in detail, and when they were in those situations, they needed to know step by step what to do. That's why it goes into so much detail with all that kind of stuff. So then the third thing is that there is judicial laws in the law of Moses. So moral laws, the ceremonial laws, and then judicial laws. And judicial laws, these were civic laws to govern life for the nation of Israel. And these gave instructions for how judges should rule and how justice was to be administered in their society. These laws acted as Israel's constitution as a nation and applied specifically to them. However, so for, let me give you, uh, you know, an example, like the law of Moses. So like, <laughs> you ever read those and you're like, if, if a man borrows his neighbor's ox and the ox is gored to death while it's in your possession, and then it goes into like, he is to, you know, I, I can't remember what it says, but it's, you know, he is to like, pay back whatever it's worth or whatever it was. You know, it's like, and it goes like all kinds of very specific situations like that. And we're kind of reading them sometimes as Gentiles. And we're like, you're like, okay, why do I need to know all that in all this detail? And it's like, it was written, it, this is the, the law of Moses. It was, their judges, literally, when they would have court cases that come before them. This, and the guy's like, my neighbor borrowed my ox. And then his ox gored my ox to death, and now I don't have an ox, and I'm out, and it's harvest time, and I got I to gotta do this, and I don't have an ox, and he's not going to pay me back. And the judge would be like, well, Moses, oh, it talks about this. This is what you need to do, and he would make the decision. That's what it was for. So those, those kind of judicial laws in the law of Moses as well. So here's, are you guys still with me? Okay. So these laws acted as Israel's constitution, um, and it applied specifically to them. It was for their judges to make decisions in their society. However, since these judicial laws were set forth by God, they actually contain a lot of wisdom for governing. And cities and nations that build their societies based upon the wisdom that's put forth in these laws will be blessed and they will prosper because they really are to promote justice. It's not that every other nation has to exactly do those laws you know what i mean like yeah um but there are a lot of principles on those laws that if we are intentional about applying our justice system based upon those principles it's going to be good it's going to be a good justice system does this make sense you guys still with me okay so let me let me just wrap up with this the purpose of the law of moses Well, I just want to say this. Here's why this, this is helpful. A lot, sometimes I'll hear... There are some people that, that say, oh yeah, Old Covenant is gone. They just make a blanket statement. We're no longer under the Old Covenant. Um, now we're in the New Covenant. And so there's grace. And, and they'll say that like because... 
And they think like, yeah, 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 I know the old covenant said that sexual immorality is wrong. But now we're in the new covenant, and Jesus died, and there's grace, and he understands me, and he forgives. And, and, and they, they excuse themselves from the moral laws. And it's like, no, that, that is God's moral standard, and it never changes, ever, right? But then sometimes there's other people that will be like, um, they, t- they take it super seriously, right? And they think they're like, they're like, no, like every law in our government has to be basically exactly what the law of Moses was that he commanded Israel to do. And it's like, no, it doesn't. You know what I mean? However, there's wisdom in there that we could take those principles and we should apply those that would be wise, right? But it's not like we're sinning because we don't follow all the ceremonial laws. And they'll even, that was an issue in the, New, in the New Testament when you read it. People would be like, can people worldly worship God? Like, you say you follow Jesus, but you still have to, you still have to celebrate the Day of Atonement. Every year at the same time with the nation of Israel, you still have to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and you still have to celebrate all these feasts and festivals and the Sabbath days. And it's like, and Paul made this clear. The New Testament authors made this clear because they're take. here's the problem. They're taking the gospel to Gentile nations that totally different culture, totally different customs. And they're like, yes, I now, through Jesus, I worship the God of Israel. That's awesome. But then it's like, well, like, how, how do I, does that mean all of a sudden I have to celebrate all their festivals and go by the calendar that God laid out for them in their nation? And Paul's like, no, you don't. That's, that's according to your conscience. But you do have to obey the moral laws that were put forth. And Paul makes that clear in the New Testament. So he's like, there's freedom. You know, if you want to celebrate, if you want to literally take like the Sabbath day, like, this is actually even in Christian circles. Like, there's churches that'd be like, no, 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 no. If you're not having church on Saturday, like, you are in sin. Because the Word of God clearly says that's the day of the Sabbath. And, like, actually, the New Testament makes it really clear. It's like, you know, church is when you gather together any day you want. You don't have to celebrate a sabbath day on the sixth day exactly but if you want to paul said it he's like there's freedom if you want to do that do it it's great it's awesome he's like but don't judge and condemn those who don't do that and this is this was actually an issue they had to work out as the gospel branched out in among the gentiles because it was an issue for them like you know how how much of this law of moses thing do we have to do and he's like, no, there's freedom in Christ, not freedom from the morality prescribed in the law of Moses, but freedom from you don't have to like, you don't have to take your sacrifice on the day of atonement to Jerusalem in the temple. To, so, you know what I mean? It's like you, you can be in Rome and just worship the Lord in spirit and in truth right there. I'm trying to say this really fast. Did you guys get it? Okay, I hope that made sense. That's why I think this distinction is helpful between the moral parts of his law, the civic part, I mean the ceremonial and the judicial laws. Okay, so let's just wrap up with this, the purpose of the law of Moses. It's like, well, what is the purpose of the law of Moses? What, what did God intend it to accomplish? Because I love the law of Moses, and I mean, I love it. Love, love, love. Like capital L, capital O, capital V-E, highlighted, emphasized. 
Love it. But, but I hear some people now look down on the law of Moses. They'd be like, yeah, the, like, almost like the law of Moses was bad or something. They're like, oh, thank God, we're set free from the law of Moses. It's like, dude, you, the, most of the time they don't know what they're talking about. Okay? So what did God intend for the law of Moses to accomplish? Number one, to reveal God's righteous standards. Remember, these were people that all, they, they did not know God for themselves. And they're, you know, people, they're living in darkness. The depraved mind is kicked in to whatever degree it was in. And God is coming to them and saying, this is what I'm like. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And these are my righteous standards, which I'm sure some of these were a surprise to them. It's like, whoa, like, that's not what it was like where we came from. God's like, yeah, like you're in for a whole new, ex- the old is gone, the new has come. <laughs> this, is, this is a new way of life. You're going to be relating to me, and I'm not like everybody else. I'm holy. Amen? So it re- the law actually revealed God's righteous standards. It reveals he doesn't like adultery. He doesn't like murder. He doesn't like false witness. He doesn't like covetousness. He doesn't like idolatry, etc. Number two, the law helps us see our utter sinfulness and our inability to live up to God's righteous standards, thus making us aware of our need for a Savior. So the one thing you see is God gives these excellent standards and laws, but they, they just constantly were falling short of them. It would just be a matter of time for they'd slip into that pattern of idolatry and adultery, and then God would redeem them, and they'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I repent. Burn up all the high places. And then just like another generation later, worshiping idols again. And it's like, ah! And it was just like, it, the, the, the seeing the standard of God put forth so plainly actually exposes the depth of our, of our sin and our inability to live a righteous life apart from, we need a Savior, man. Like, I, God, I need you to help me. Like, I can't live the way that you want me to live. And I, I agree, even mentally, I see the beauty and the wisdom in your standards, but I fall short of them. We need a Savior. And actually, the purpose of the law of Moses, one of them, was to help us see. God's like, I know you're a mess. I know you're dark. I know you need deliverance. I know you need a savior. It's like, but some of you don't know it yet. And I'm going to actually put these laws here so that in, when you see the light, it exposes your own darkness. And so that you see your own needs so that you can cry out to me. And I'm going to, cause I want to save you and deliver you. That's what I'm setting you up for. Number three, the purpose of the law of Moses is to reveal God's method of atoning for and cleansing us from our sins which is by sacrifice. This ultimately foreshadowed and pointed to Jesus being our perfect atoning sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then, I'm going to finish on this one. The fourth purpose of the law of Moses is what God intended it to accomplish. Pay attention to this. It's to restrain sinful people 
from acting out the evil desires that were festering in their corrupted hearts. Thus, keeping society a decent place to live. Let me illustrate this, okay? So the problem is, is when you've, Israel, even then, right, you have a nation of, of people who 100% of them have a sinful nature. They're just like all the rest of us, right? How do you govern that society to keep it a dis- decent place to live when you have a million people who have adulterous desires, idolatrous desires, murderous desires, covetousness desires? It's like, oh my goodness. You know what I mean? It's like, this is the way the world is. This is, that's, praise God, he's going to return and make all things right. But in this present evil age, that's why it's called evil age. It's because it's a world full of sinful people. So God gives the law not to deliver them from their sinful nature, but to help them to restrain themselves from acting out the evil desires that were in their hearts. So, for example, this is a true story. I read this story about a pastor who was, who was on a flight that from Amsterdam to Singapore. Direct flight. Now, in Amsterdam, the law of the land, it's like, you know, drugs were legal. So, actually, it's like a a mecca for people who just want drugs and prostitution, because prostitution is legal there. (laughs) And it's like people just, it's, those are evil laws that God's going to destroy when he returns. (laughs) I'm so happy for that. But that's the way it was there. And so, you know, people who want to just indulge themselves in that lifestyle and not get in trouble for it, that... A lot of times they would go to Amsterdam. So this pastor's on a flight, but the laws in Singapore, the drug laws in Singapore are like some of the most strict drug laws in the world. They have zero tolerance for it. Like if they catch you with drugs in their nation, says they will, you know, you'll go through the judicial process. And if you're found guilty, it's like severe penalty. I can't remember. It might be death penalty, I think is, is what I heard. But it's like that. It's like severe penalty. And so they're on a flight from Amsterdam, where the law is one way, to Singapore, where the law is the exact opposite. And this pastor's on that flight, and sitting next to him is a young man. And this young man kind of looks at him and kind of smiles and says, You know, because he found out the pastor, you know, is from, he'd been to Singapore before. And the young man's like, Yeah, is it true you're from Singapore? He's like, He's like, I heard that, like, like, they had really strict laws against drugs in Singapore. He's like, he's like, he's like laughing. He's like, is that really true? The pastor's like, oh, yeah, no, it's, that's, that's real. If they catch you with drugs there, you'll be tried. If you're found guilty, it's like, and uh, all of a sudden, the guy gets really quiet. And the young man just starts fidgeting uncomfortably in his seat on the plane. And then after a few minutes, he gets up out of his seat, and he goes to the bathroom, and he's gone for a long time in the restroom of the airplane. And then after a long time, he comes back, and he sits down next to the pastor, and he's just like, it's almost like this look of relief on his face. And the pastor looks at him and smiles, and he says, did you get rid of some unwanted baggage? (laughs) And sheepishly, the young man was like, yeah, I did. Now, here's, here's the point, right? The law of Singapore didn't deliver that young man from his desire for drugs, his addiction to drugs, or his covetous greed that wanted to sell it to other people for, for greedy gain. 
it didn't change him at the heart level. But you know what it did? It helped him to restrain himself from acting out those desires, thus taking the drugs into place and getting other young people hooked on drugs so he can satisfy his greed. Did that make sense? That's the purpose of good laws. That's why laws matter. They're really important. And some people mistakenly, they don't understand. Like God's like, I never intended for the law to save somebody. It was intended to help them restrain themselves until I got the atonement for their sins, Jesus, in place where they could be saved and delivered from the sin nature. Does that make sense? So the law is good. And some people, they say, oh, the law is so dumb. It didn't work. It's like, no, it worked perfectly. That's what it was designed to do. It wasn't designed to save the person. God never even intended it for that. To say like the law failed because it was so bad it couldn't save people, that would be like you coming up to me and saying like, man, my car is a complete failure. I'd be like, why? It's like, because like I drove off the bridge the other day and it would not fly. Things worthless. I'm like, dude, it was never intended to fly. It was intended to drive, right? It's, it wasn't intended to fly. And so it wasn't a failure. It accomplished the purpose for which it was created. But you were trying to use it for something it was never designed to do. But I'll tell you this about your car. If you use it for its purpose, it can get you to an airport where there's a plane that can help you fly. And I would say the same thing in the law of Moses. It wasn't intended to save people from their sinful nature. It was intended to help them restrain from acting out their adulterous desires. Thus, it's like, so there's less broken marriages and less divorces and less all the negative stuff in society. Did you guys, you with me? So the law of Moses is good. It's really good. Paul says that in the New Testament. He's like, the law's good. Law's awesome. But grace is even better. Because grace of God enables us to actually obey God's moral standards from the inside out. So that the adulterer doesn't even want to commit adultery anymore. So that the drug addict doesn't even want drugs anymore. It's able to set us free. That's good news. That's good news. That's the new covenant. You know what's good about grace? Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, yeah, you know how the law of Moses said don't commit murder? He says, I tell you, don't even hate somebody. Why? Because hate is the seed from which murder springs. Hatred, racism, the prejudice, that racial prejudice or whatever it is, or class, you know, Different societies, they, it's not even a race they look down on. It's like different classes. Like all that is the seed from which the, the plant of murder springs. Jesus is like, I came 
not just to help you restrain yourself from murder, but I came to set you free from the hatred that has a vice grip on your soul. I came to liberate you from hatred and replace it with love so that so powerful that you will even love your enemies and bless those who curse you spitefully to your face and you'll just look at them and feel compassion and say, God, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Have mercy on them, Lord. Ah, this is good stuff. So if it's like, oh my goodness, I just read these Ten Commandments and I'm disqualified. I could never walk with God because I have lustful desires all the time. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm greedy. I'm covetous. I hate people. I can tell you people right now that I'd love to punch in the face. I'm like, I, I just, you know, I have all these sins. It's like I'm totally unable to do this and live for God. And it's like, Boom, success. That's what the law was intended to accomplish. Now you see your need. And now here Jesus is. He's the solution. He says, I came to set you free from your sins. I came to deliver you from the hatred, to deliver you from the lust, to deliver you from the covetousness, and to replace the hatred with love, to replace the idolatry with love for God. Why don't you guys stand with me? Remember, this is the story. This is the, the story of the Bible, restoring paradise. It's like the whole world's in sin, and God's putting a plan in place to restore it. And this part in the story, the law of Moses, it was, it was a key part in the redemption process that God was building. But it wasn't the end of the story. It was a key part leading to the happy ending. I just want to invite you right now. Like if, if here's, here's what you do. I'll just tell you what to do. And then you can do it. If you want to be made right with God, all your sins can be, that you've ever committed can be completely forgiven in a second. But you know what I love about the grace of God? Not just that it forgives me of the penalty of sin. I'm super grateful for that. I'm really glad I don't have to go to hell. I deserve hell. But it frees us from the penalty of sin. But you know what I love? It frees me from the power of sin as well. So that I'm no longer a slave to sin. Like when the devil comes knocking at my door to tempt me with whatever, like I had the Holy Spirit in the house to say, no, leave in Jesus' name. We don't live that way anymore. And like God sets me free through the Spirit dwelling in me. And here's what you do. The Bible says confess your sins to God. Like the beginning point is you being honest with God and agreeing with his assessment of your life. Which means I have value, but it also means I've fallen short of his standards and I need to change. And so you just say, God, I just admit to you that I have sinned against you. Forgive me for my lust. Forgive me for when I've acted out those lustful desires. 
God, forgive me for the people that have been hurt because of me being selfish, acting out those desires. God, forgive me for the hatred. Forgive me for the idolatry. Forgive me. For... And you know what he does? You confess your sins, and, and then he forgives you for your sins. Because Jesus died to, to pay the penalty for your sin, to make you free from not only the penalty, but from the power of it. And then the Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you. So I just want to pray right now. I just want to let you pray. I'm just going to give you a moment. Just talk to God. Lord, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. I am yours. I am yours. Forgive me, Lord. I have sinned. God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my selfish ambition and all the ways that that has expressed itself through lust and hatred and covetousness and greed and pride and self-exaltation and putting others down and slandering people and tearing them down with my words. God, forgive me. Dishonoring my parents, not honoring my mother and father. I've sinned, Lord. God, help me to honor my mother and father. Help me to love you and love people the way you do. Change me, Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that the blood of Jesus has washed away all my sin and that because of him I stand before you pure and without fault. I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Change me from the inside out and help me to live for you, Jesus. You know, we just heard earlier, you just heard at the end of worship, you just heard, I don't know, six, seven people just quickly testifying. He set me free from this. Because grace of God, it, it really does change us from the inside out. From meth, from alcohol, from drugs, from murderous spirit, witchcraft, lust, pornography. I mean, you know, those, and those are just some of them, but you know, you know, like, but there are others too that are just as, just as crippling to our soul that aren't as looked down upon by society, like pride. Well, I want my name, I want to maintain my dignity. If I go, if I really get on fire for Jesus, what are my colleagues going to think of me? I mean, I have a respectable job. It's called pride. That's what that is. Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. But if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Jesus is like, I'm not going to have these secret lovers. 
I'm having a public marriage covenant, and <laughs> I'm, I'm confessing you publicly. You better confess me publicly. How would you feel if your spouse is like, hey, let's be married, but can I just, I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want actually people to think I'm married to you. That would be embarrassing. Ouch. How would that make you feel for real? Isn't that what it is when we're like, I don't want to really go bold for Jesus and tell people about Jesus. And I don't want to like take stand and live for Jesus here because then these colleagues will like laugh at me and they'll think I'm stupid and that will be embarrassing. It's basically like, Jesus, I love you. You know, I love you, right? Like, let me just, let's just do our thing in that little room on Sunday where it's safe and all the other people love you too. And in my little home, but out here in front of my friends, I'm embarrassed about you, so I just don't want to say anything. He's going to be like, no. He's like, I don't, I don't do love that. I don't do the half-hearted love thing. Like this is, God's like, I'm all in. I am all in on you. I am all in with you. I'm going public with my love for you. I died on a cross naked publicly was humiliated for you because I love you. I went public with it. I'm not accepting any less. And there's other things like pride, the fear of man, greed, gluttony. There's other things that society actually celebrates. But God's like, hey, that's the laws of Amsterdam, but this is Singapore, so to speak. Follow the illustration. (laughs) He's like, you're living in a different world now, and you've got to change. Sometimes we could look on, oh, thank you, I'm not a drug addict. Thank you, I'm not. Da, 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 da. It's like God's like, yeah, but <laughs> you need me just as bad as them. Yeah? So even that, it's God, I confess my sin of the fear of man, pride, gluttony. God, set me free and help me to honor you, to love you publicly and privately. In Jesus' name, God, come and save us. And Lord, we thank you for it. We just release your grace even now. Bring forth the fruit of righteousness in it through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, good job. Thanks for hanging with me.